0: This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Tech story is front and centre. A lot of people saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market
1: action. A significant sell-off in European assets. The
0: dollar a little bit stronger today. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. And a historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson
2: on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. You are listening to The Cable. Live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio alongside Guy Johnson. I'm Jonathan Ferro at the close on the FTSE, a little bit firmer, up by a third of 1% on the FTSE 100. In the United States, the S&P 500 lower by a tenth of 1%, but really muted price action. Going into the main event, the Fed decision. And for me, Guy, the week starts in around about one hour's time.
1: Absolutely. There's been quite a lot of interesting news, though, today. Um, the cancelling of this uh, APEC summit, I think, is is certainly something that caught the market's eye. Uh, you wonder how this is going to uh, get resolved. Presumably, uh, there will be another meeting somewhere at which uh, Xi Jinping and the, the President of the United States, Donald Trump, can meet uh, and potentially side this phase one deal. So that's... Uh, Certainly worth keeping an eye on. Um, the Brexit story continues to rumble on, on as well. Uh, we saw the last PMQs before uh, the House is dissolved. I think that's going to be on November the 6th. But I think you're right, John. Uh, it is all about the Fed. James Bevan joins us now in the studio from CCLA Investment Management, where he is the CIO. James, um, what is your expectation for the U.S. economy? Because what is priced today is a 25-bit cut and then a pause.
3: I think the Fed, in announcing a cut, and I certainly expect there to be a cut, will say that any future policy shifts will be data dependent. And I look at the US economy and I certainly believe that the Fed will be minded to continue to ease next year, but certainly not by a great deal. So I expect the yield curve to remain positively sloped. In other words, long yields to be greater than short yields. I think that ultimately is supportive of the equity market.
0: It's Been a real sentiment shift in the last couple of weeks, James. Do you think that's justified?
3: I don't no i worry that uh, this shift to value and away from growth is way too early and way too dramatic in the context of the probable uh, earnings numbers. I look at the streets expectation of 5% uh, revenue growth next year for the S&P 500 and yet 10% corporate earnings growth. Now, I absolutely can acknowledge that buybacks will add something to the earnings number relative to the revenue number. But baked into the cake is an expectation that margins will rise. I see no scope for margins to increase from current levels, given the probability of increasing wage pressures and rising commodity costs. Against that back cloth, I think corporate earnings numbers for the S&P 500 next year, likely to come in close to 5% with another 5% in 2021. That basis, I think it's absolutely right to remain focused on quality and on growth and way too wrong to go for value.
1: Is a phase one trade deal priced in because we saw the APEC summit being cancelled today. Therefore,
3: if there is no deal in the near term, there has to be a risk. I absolutely believe that the market is anticipating that there will be no further hiking of hostility. I think that we will end up with a standoff between uh, China and the States. But equally, I don't see scope for any rowing back of the decisions that have already been taken, simply because we have not got the point where, The US can genuinely claim that they have engineered an environment where they will be facing fair trade, even if they accept that they don't want free trade.
0: Have we seen the pain yet from the policies that have already been implemented, from the tariff hikes we've already had? Have we seen that work its way through the global economy, or have we yet to see that fully?
3: John, I think that earlier in the quarter we saw some better news on the trade numbers and I think we will now see a deterioration of the trade numbers. The lead indicators that I have on global trade say this is going to be a really difficult quarter and we should not become excited at the prospect of a resurgent China economy.
1: Let's turn our attention to what's happening with the Brexit story and try to figure out what is going on there. Um, Your view is that gilts are a, a, a little rich right now.
3: I think guilt are an accident waiting to happen. I look at the long-term inflation picture of the UK. I look at domestic inflation, uh, so services and domestic traded goods. Uh, I'm looking at a headline number of around three to have uh, guilt yields of sub 1% just look completely wrong, that the market is pricing further cuts in money rates. I think that's completely wrong because I suspect that the Bank of England's next move in rates is up, not down. Why, James? Because the Bank of England is going to look at the entrenched domestic inflation numbers and say we really can't let these run. And also, I think it will want to embed some flexibility to cut rates in the next recession. When the UK economy next rolls into recession, there is nothing left in the tank uh, for monetary policy and precious little room for fiscal policy, given that the commitment, both from the current government in the UK, but any particular potential future administration if headed by the Labour Party is all to spend money next year
0: shown very little interest over the last few years in fact going all the way back to governor king moving interest rates higher to head off interest to head off higher inflation or above target inflation what gives you the impression James that it becomes deeply entrenched and so deeply entrenched that the Bank of England will actually start to increase rates to head off higher inflation.
3: In years gone by, we had a very interesting challenge that inflation was in excess of wage costs and therefore domestic inflation pressures were actually quite muted. Now we have wage inflation significantly in excess of... uh, price inflation. Therefore, households are becoming richer. And I think that the Bank of England will say this is an accident waiting to happen in terms of rising wage costs. Rising wage costs will undermine productivity and undermine long term economic success.
1: Won't the stronger pound and people are talking about kind of a a move from 130 to 140 put some dampener on that inflationary impulse?
3: There's been remarkably little correlation between the weakness of the pound since Brexit and global traded goods and service inflation. Indeed, if you were to look at the global traded goods and the service sector inflation, despite the fact we've had the currency weakness, we've actually had uh, generalised disinflation. And against that backcloth, I don't believe that we should expect some reasonable strength of the pound. Not taking us back to the highs that we saw prior to the Brexit vote uh, is actually going to depress long-term inflation risk. James, quick
0: word on the Brexit situation. A vote, December 12th, an election that should be about more than just one issue. Guy and I were talking about this earlier on today, that back in 2017, June of 2017, there was a belief that we had a single issue election. Do we have something more than that, once again?
3: I think that the, the single, if you said to me, what is the single most likely outcome, it is yet another hung parliament. It is yet again the probability that the Brexit Engagement is kicked down the line. I mean, after all, for those not familiar with what we're talking about, this is only the withdrawal agreement. It's not about the long-term relationship that we will have with uh, Europe. That all is going to be uh, back-ended towards the uh, the fourth quarter of 2020. I think the markets will become very nervous in that period because there won't be a free trade agreement negotiated by that time.
1: Uh, be interesting to see how long the standstill agreement gets uh, gets extended by. On that point. But but to John's kind of question about the, the single issue, the fact that Brexit isn't done in the run up to this election presumably means that this election is more likely to be about Brexit than anything else. People are trying just trying to figure out whether or not Boris's narrative, Boris Johnson's narrative around Brexit can be derailed by Jeremy Corbyn once again in the way that he did to Theresa May.
3: Well, I would say that if you were to simply look at the opinion polls today, all other things being equal, Mr Johnson should end up with a significant majority. And the the flies in the ointment in terms of the mathematics that lies behind those conclusions are threefold. One is that we just don't understand how many pro-Brexiteers will still side with Mr Farage and a much more aggressive uh, policy towards Europe. And Mr Johnson's lack of capacity to deliver Brexit by the end of October is clearly going to be a factor. The second issue is that the polls say that more people want to vote Tory, but there is a real risk that they are people in constituencies that are already deeply pro tory So they may not get uh, the swing of votes that otherwise is expected. Vote
1: count versus seats. James, great to see you today. Thank Thank you so much much. for joining us both on Bloomberg Television and here on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, Up next, we're counting you down to the Fed. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Good evening. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio in the London area and around the world on all of your Bloomberg devices. I'm Guy Johnson in London. John Ferro joining us from New York. Uh, John, it's a four-hour gap. Therefore, we get to talk about the failure a little bit earlier on than we normally would do here in London. Has anybody said to you today that they don't expect 25 bps today?
0: Jefferies, in the last 24 hours, they expect to hold. And they're the outlier, let's be clear about that. But I actually do think it's a lot more balanced than the markets might suggest. The markets are going into this basically saying 95% priced, rate cut is in, it is done. And that's why many economists think that it is done, because the markets are saying it is and the Fed were not push back against that. But if you think about the commentary from the FOMC going into this blackout period, why a lot of people cemented their call for a rate cut is because there was very little pushback from some of the big names on the Fed. Williams of New York, the vice chairman, Rich Clarida, pretty much no pushback whatsoever. But the Fed commentary the month previous, over the whole of September into October 2. I thought it was pretty finely balanced as to whether they'll move again, which is why I think some people find the middle ground, which is essentially the cut today. It's a hawkish cut and the delivery of the guidance isn't going to be as dovish as perhaps some people might be hoping for going into 2020.
1: Slightly different question. Are people saying over there that the Fed should cut?
0: Some say yes. Yes. Some say no, and for the same reasons we've been arguing about since the end of July. Look, I have a problem with the people that come out and say why they're cutting interest rates with equities at all time highs, because they'll be the same individuals when, that complain that the Fed didn't get ahead of a slowdown. I've still not been convinced by Fed officials as to why interest rate cuts help the economy in this environment, given the weakness is in business spending. The weakness is quite clearly around confidence, and all of that is quite clearly connected to the trade dispute that they have no control over whatsoever. What is clear, though, through 2019, that the Federal Reserve has pivoted hard. They've lowered the rate path at the Fed, not just cut interest rates. And what that's basically done is support financial conditions. And compared to where we were 12 months ago, when we had a situation going into December 2018 where the primary market for credit had completely seized up for high yield. Not a single security came to market in Q4 in the December of 2018, to be precise, because the market was seizing up. And I think the Fed has done a lot of work to keep financial conditions loose, and we should always respect the counterfactual. And the counterfactual is if they hadn't have made that pivot, I believe we would be in a bigger mess in 2019 than we're currently oh, yeah. in.
1: I guess the big question now is, is what happens next year? And a couple of things kind of sort of spring to mind. The market seems to be pricing April as the next cut that we're going to get. Yet the people I'm talking to seem to be suggesting that we get many more cuts than the market currently has priced at this stage. But I just wonder if, if the Fed will end up needing to front load some of those cuts at the beginning of 2020. Because the closer we get to the election... Presumably it becomes harder and harder for them to deliver on that.
0: Priya Misra, TD Securities, she thinks three cuts in 2020. Back-end, front-end? Three interest rate cuts. But,
1: but across the year?
0: Yeah. She's not
1: concerned about kind of a October cut from the Fed?
0: No, she hasn't talked about that. But she's saying three cuts yeah. through 2020. I, she thinks... heard, I
1: have to say, more and more people are telling me that they think that
0: the Fed is by no means done. She's going with interest rate cut today three interest rate cuts next year. And I think if you put most people on the spot and said to them, OK, if they go for a pause, what's the next move, hike or cut? Nobody sank hike. Nobody. This is a pause on the way to zero. It just depends how long this pause actually lasts. And if we are going to trend growth, and I think this is the big concern for so many people, if we're going to trend growth in America in and around 2%, that's OK. But what we have in Europe, trend growth has got really, really close to stall speed any kind of minor shock, and you've got a big problem abroad. And the jury's out as to whether we're out of the woods yet for the global economy. Sentiment has shifted. The data hasn't. And what I think is going to be really interesting a little bit later on, not so much the news conference, Chinese PMIs. Let's see if that data has shifted, along with the sentiment, in the last month or so.
1: Yep. The banking sector is certainly focusing on this firmly. We're going to hear from CSCEO CEO and that's coming up next. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio.
0: This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio alongside Guy Johnson. I'm Jonathan Farrow. Credit Suisse. Gave a more downbeat outlook after trading income surge, saying the US China trade dispute and Brexit will lead to more cautious spending and investment decisions. The CEO, Tijan Tiam, sat down with Bloomberg's Francine Lacroix earlier today.
4: Yeah, the results are honestly, we believe, are really good. Q3 is traditionally a weak quarter for us. This is now the third quarter successively that we have more than a billion of profits. We've never done that. Uh, and 9% return on tangible equity in a very difficult market. So we were quite pleased with that. And that was the objective of everything we did in the last three years, build a bank that could do reasonably well even in tough uh, environments. And this was a tough quarter. The outlook we're cautious. Uh, We think that the wealth management fundamentals uh, remain there. You look at our transaction revenues in wealth management, they're up 12%. We're up 19% in Asia, up 13% in revenue in Asia. So that that wealth management story uh, has traction. Uh, where we are more dependent is um, like on the primary market. You see that IBCM is under pressure. There's less primary activity because of the uncertainty. Um, did very well in global markets, at least you know. I think last time I told you it's the first time I smiled when I'm talking about them. So I'm glad to be able to smile again when I'm talking about them. It's becoming a habit. They did extremely well, really industry-leading performance of 34%.
5: So on trading, on trading, are you doubling down when a lot of your competitors are retrenching? Uh,
4: that's. Uh, great question. They are doing this with the same amount of capital. The reason I am so pleased with this performance is that it's very good, but it's done with the same amount of capital. They've done all this flat capital. So they're up 30% with the same amount of capital. So the easiest and biggest trap in investment banking is to pour more capital in, which then drives revenue. But the returns being what they are, it's not a long-term strategy. So we're really pleased that they did what we told them, restructure, then grow, but with uh, capital efficiency. So we are look. political uncertainties, yes, US-China, big one, uh, we'll wait for November and Santiago to see if we're going to get a, a mini-deal or not, that's a big one. Um, and then the, the Brexit, of course, which we've discussed many times, and um, where the uncertainty actually possibly for the first time is reducing and then the Middle East and all other considerations. So where you see that having an impact is on very big transactions and capex. Like uh, people have very little visibility on 2021. So all the decisions that go beyond that tend to be scrutinized and uh, delayed sometimes.
5: On the wealth management, you still see pockets of growth that are untapped.
4: Yes, yes, yes. We see, uh, I mean, I was just in Brazil, which is uh, booming. Uh, I saw everybody and it's, uh, Uh, It's a few countries right now with positive real interest rates. And the the growth the potentiality are very strong, I mean, all over the Middle East, uh, not to mention Asia, where we still see a a lot of opportunity. In Southeast Asia, we're doing very well. Uh, China is, of course, under pressure. Revenue in China is down 18%. But we we still see all those same fundamentals of wealth creation and expansion of those entrepreneurs who are primary clientele still intact. Yes.
5: So uh, going forward, you worry about geopolitics. You talked about expenditure. Is there anything else that that could make Uh, investors nervous?
4: Yeah, I mean, the the negative interest rates are not helpful to the banking sector. I think uh, everybody can see that. Uh, So uh, it's something that will have to change uh, at some point uh, to really uh, get the sector back on, on track, I think.
5: Um, how have you been coping because of the spying scandal of the last couple of weeks?
4: Uh, look, it's been a, a difficult period, of course, for the bank. I want to thank three constituencies. First, uh, our clients, because they really stuck with us. I was just doing last week, a client uh, lunch with 12 major Swiss clients. And the sentiment is very strong. They they, they like the bank. They said. So there's been no discernible impact on our business at all. I want to thank our staff because... And we ask them in Switzerland in particular. I think outside Switzerland, the impact has been minimal, to be fair. I uh, was in New York, in Asia, absolutely no impact. But in Switzerland, they've had to face a lot of questions from clients, and we've handled them, um, and to the satisfaction of the clients, and then there's been no impact. And our shareholders have been extremely robust. If you get a share price, it's not the share price of a company in crisis, or there's a crisis of confidence. Uh, shareholders have been very much ba- backing the company and its leadership, and that's been very good. Now. On the, the events themselves, okay, I will say this. The, pre- the people involved believed they were acting in the best interest of the company. These are not people who are trying to increase their bonuses or to bribes to make a loan. They are simple agents of a company who believe they are protecting uh, the interest of the company. Now, the action taken was inappropriate. Mm-hmm. There's no question about that and disproportionate. Three, I did not order directly or indirectly that action.
5: Do you feel like you need to rebuild trust with some of your constituents? Um,
4: no, not from, the, not from what I can see. I mean, there's a lot of uh, speculation, and, uh, which is very carefully fed. Uh, in the media, there's been also a lot of lies, uh, which my staff know to be lies. Um, so it's done less damage than people would think, because uh, sadly or happily, people inside the company know me.
5: But but you haven't had clients actually question by pulling out money, no, it hasn't had no, any impact absolutely like that? zero
4: impact. Zero uh, impact.
5: On, on tiering and on negative rates, yeah. with what we know now about negative rates, mm-hmm. is there anything that you would have done differently for Credit Suisse?
4: Oh no, because I've, look, one big decision I made in 2015 was to, to reduce or more or less close down our rates activity, okay? that was extremely controversial, I had every journalist telling me this is crazy when rates go up. Uh, you're going to be falling behind. And I said that business is structurally damaged, will never generate appropriate returns, and all the, the uh, players who kept the optionality are now restructuring it or closing it down. So we, we got that call, which was really big for us. Absolutely right. And that's why global market is doing so well.
0: Tijan of Credit Suisse, leaving us uh, with even more questions than answers, I think, around the Spark scandal still guy. Uh, Those questions will linger. He denies, of course, to have any role in it all, but ultimately he ran the bank and didn't know what was going on, which always raises more questions, doesn't it?
1: It does. I also suspect that it's far too early to get a clear idea. People don't, when they are uh, holding the kind of uh, high asset values that that some of his clients do, make decisions quickly. No. Um, And they think about things and they mull them over and they make decisions slowly. Today was the day, John, that that Tiran came in in the Eurozone. Uh, which is significant, and certainly something that James Womolka was talking about uh, when Matt Miller interviewed him in Frankfurt a little bit earlier on today. Uh, We are continuing to count you down to the Fed. Uh, We've got uh, just over half an hour to go. This is Bloomberg.
3: This
2: is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Good evening. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio in the London area and around the world on all of your Bloomberg devices. I'm Guy Johnson in in London. John Farrow is over in New York. FTSE closing today, 73.30 are by three-tenths of 1%. Uh, we saw some of the uh, the names like Reket Benkeys uh, and Unilever doing a little bit better today. CAC lifted by... Uh, Some of those same names as well, same sort of areas having a good day today, L'Oreal in particular. The DAX, though, dragged down by Deutsche Bank. We'll hear from the CFO a little bit later on. We're counting you down to the Fed. That's the main story. And the S&P right now, absolutely flat, John Farrow. Into that,
0: uh, into that announcement. Really muted price action, guys. It has been over the last couple of days or so. I imagine it will pick up because we have plenty of catalysts for volatility, including the earnings after the close here in New York. We'll hear from the likes of Apple and Facebook later tonight, Chinese PMI's Friday, the ISM on manufacturing in the United States and a payrolls report. To Look out for a lot of Fed speak as well. So just so much going on over the next couple of days which is why Guy and I think think we both agree that the week really starts in around about 29 minutes on a Wednesday. It doesn't start Monday. We've been waiting for the back end of this week to really get going. Really pleased to say I didn't realise she'd be with us. So when she walked through into the studio. I was really happy. Yelena Shiretseva of Bloomberg Intelligence and Bloomberg Economics. Good morning to you and good afternoon. I don't even know what the time is anymore, Yelena, but it's great to have you with us.
6: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. What are you
0: looking for from Chairman Powell in about 60 minutes' time in that news conference?
6: So I am hoping that he will walk a very fine line and he's not going to tell us that uh, they are finishing, they are ending the insurance cuts cycle. So because I think if he gets uh, really hawkish and uh, tries to persuade the markets they are done, uh, we're going to see some uh, unpleasant reaction in the markets. So I think that he just needs to say the same, repeat the same message. Uh, We are going meeting by meeting and just leave just enough room for the markets to think, to, to know that the Fed is there. If the data gets to deteriorate further.
1: How much would it have to deteriorate further for the Fed to, to move again?
6: I think the central thing to look for, uh, to look at is uh, payrolls, uh, what happens in the labour market. And that's why uh, the payrolls report this Friday is so important. We We did see some filtering of weakness into other sectors of the economy from manufacturing. It's not only in the manufacturing sector right now. It's getting through to other sectors like in services. And if we see a broad-based decline in the pace of hiring, that's going to be detrimental to labor market health and to the health of the consumer, which is the sole drive of economic growth right now. We received GDP numbers this morning and all growth that we saw in the third quarter basically came from the consumer sector. 1.9% was uh, the contribution from the consumption.
0: Sub 100k, basically the estimate I'm seeing on the street from so many different economists for payrolls on Friday. How much of that, Elena, is GM? 50. At
6: 50k. <laughs> yes. I think we're going to see a few... Um, kind of exogenous shocks, uh, temporary factors this time around. So one of them is a uh, GM strike, which uh, will cut 50K, uh, 50,000 uh, from uh, this uh, jobs number. And there's another one that is possible that is uh, from the census hiring. So what happens, you know, before the year of the census starts, uh, the Census Bureau actually hires a lot of people to do address canvassing. So people go and uh, verify the addresses. That happened back in August and uh, uh, they did not let these people go uh, in September. So we think that it will happen uh, in October and we'll have some, something like 20,000 uh, correction on that front.
0: So we need to look at private payrolls and then consider the GM effect on top of all of that, right? So There's a lot of noise. This the month. ADP
1: number doesn't include this, does it?
6: But it ADP makes, it, is only looking at uh, private payrolls, and for the purposes of but it the doesn't service, include the
1: GM story, does it?
6: No, because uh, they consider these people as employed for the purposes of ADP. But uh, the labor department does it differently. If a person is on a strike, he's not or she is not considered employed. So. Uh, Don't look at ADP numbers as a guide for uh, Friday's payrolls. It will be a weak number, we think.
0: Is it a better guide of the economy, though, the ADP report (laughs) this month, funny enough?
6: Well, uh, somehow, um, eventually, these two numbers converge. And, uh, you know, it's just a matter of revisions and looking at things. But also, the ADP number shows that the momentum has slowed. It's uh, one way or another, you look at it. It's weaker than uh, the numbers that we were getting uh, a year ago.
1: What is the Fed thinking when it comes to the trade story? Clearly, it has had an impact on the U.S. economy this year. uh, And you've talked about what's happening in the the manufacturing sector. The APAC summit got cancelled this afternoon. uh, And we're now looking at a situation where we don't know when that deal can be signed. The market's already priced it in. Where is the Fed on it?
6: they just uh just as everybody else uh watching and uh looking what is going to happen so they cannot really uh say now okay this is not going to they they are, it's not their job to predict to predict what happens to uh, trade agreements they're just reacting to the news but one thing is certain they see today's gdp number and they say okay this is very concentrated in the consumer sector we don't see any contribution from the business sector for the second months uh, for the second quarter in a row it's actually subtracting from growth so it's already bad it's already in the data and uh, uncertainty that all these trade uh, tensions are bringing is already affecting data to a quite a significant degree
0: so tom Keane and i had a very long lunch and i ate a, a, i think a half a loaf of bread And then I came back into the building and saw you and Carl Don't Don't fall asleep after that lunch. I'm very, (laughs) very very tired. Um, Carl Riccadonna was with you and Carl was going on and on at Tom saying that the last time we had a mid-cycle adjustment, the growth picture, the backdrop was just so different. The level of rates was incredibly different as well. The only real parallel is a reduction of 75 basis points. Yelena, talk me through the differences between now, the mid-90s and late-90s, the last time we saw this kind of move from the Fed.
6: Sure. So back uh, in 1995, 96, and back in 1998, GDP growth was higher. So, uh, for example, in uh, the 1998 instance, it was above 6%. So now we are talking about sub-2% growth. So what is the Fed going to do? And Also remember, they have much less room to to cut. So, if you think, okay, if you have less room to cut, maybe you should stop and see what happens. No, the Fed uh, people say you actually should be more aggressive to prevent further slowing in the economy, and that's what Powell said, and that's what we think he will be talking at the press conference, and that's why they should be cautious. Uh, and not just say, OK, the cycle is done. We are not going to cut any further. Um, we'll just see what happens. It, it was a mistake uh, last December. And uh, I think they learned from the mistake and they're not going to be uh, very you know, direct, at least, about what they're going to do.
0: Elena, great to catch up with you. Thank you. I know you're going to be incredibly busy. Yelena Shirecheva of Bloomberg Economics running us through that Fed decision. Coming up in just a moment, Guy and I are going to be talking about the trade story as the APEX Summit gets cancelled in Chile. And then a little later in the programme, we'll bring you the latest on Deutsche Bank as Bloomberg catches up with the CFO. From New York and London, counting you down to the next Fed call. It is 20 minutes away. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio.
0: This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio alongside Guy Johnson. I'm Jonathan Ferro. At the close today, the FTSE 100 a little heavier. We add some weight to the FTSE, up by 24 points, call it 25, positive a third of 1%. The S&P 500 down just a tenth. As Guy pointed out, really muted price action, no real catalyst for things to pick up. You'll get one in about 20 minutes, though, the Fed. And then 30 minutes after that, you'll get another one, the news conference. Then later on this evening, tonight, you will have Chinese PMIs. You'll get them overnight in the United Kingdom around about 1 a.m., I think, London time, 9 p.m. Eastern time. No (coughs) idea what that is. Local time on to Friday, payrolls Friday, just around the corner, and a manufacturing ISM for the United States of America in the mix, too. So, Guy, if things were quiet now, there are many reasons, including some earnings a little bit later from Apple and Facebook, for things to pick up as the week grows older.
1: Absolutely, there's a lot of Fed speak coming up like loads of Fed speak. Uh, I'm just kind of wondering if this was a is it your sense that this is a pre designed program? to ensure that, that that as the market kind of looks at the Fed, that the Fed can communicate accurately the pivot that it's trying to make at the moment into maybe a period of higher data dependency? I'm just really curious. Um, this time last year, there were, there were communication errors. Do you think as we sort of come into Christmas this year, they're, they're desperately trying to avoid that?
0: I don't know. I don't know how orchestrated some of this is. Bear in mind that the the Federal Reserve staff Don't speak publicly between a week prior to the Saturday preceding a FOMC meeting and then the Thursday following that meeting as well. So there is this big sort of gap ahead of the meeting and then just after the meeting where they can't speak. And then everyone comes out at the end of the so-called blackout period and speaks as much as they like. I think it's hard to orchestrate the regional Fed presidents, especially the ones that don't have a vote and especially the ones that have also dissented and want to come out and tell them what they think and what their interpretation of monetary policy is right now. I think to some degree, does Chairman Powell have some control over his board of governors? Yeah, I think they can talk to each other and try and orchestrate things a little bit more. But you don't have much control. I think sometimes for the Fed it's like herding cats getting some of these Fed presidents to get on side, Um, especially the really dovish ones like, say, Neil Kashkari and Jim Bullard who, if you start to pause and they think you need to cut more, you're going That's to hear really. a lot more from them in the next couple of months.
1: Everybody seems to have a pretty good handle on the effect that the GM strike is going to have on payrolls. I'm just kind of wondering whether this is, this is a slightly harder number to call, though, than it normally would be. Given, given that effect and given the census... So I just wonder whether that definitely strikes me as being a, a an opportunity for some volatility. Yeah, I
0: think it's really difficult to call the headline number. They might say, you know, Yelena says 50K. Okay, I mean, you can try yeah. and strip out some of these numbers. But doesn't that just put even more onus on the other figures in the payrolls report? If you get a big miss on a headline number, people will turn around and say, GM, censor stuff, move along, look at hours work. worked. There's been a focus for so many people the last couple of months. Are we seeing any crack in corporate confidence that is weighing on hiring and the amount of hours they're offering to staff, look for things like that. I think that's where the focus is going to be this Friday. Any spillover whatsoever from lower corporate confidence into not just the pace of hiring, but things like hours worked.
1: It's got I, uh, as the GDP numbers today showed. I, the consumer is everything. So everything. If the, consumer, if the consumer fails at this point, but but as we've discussed in the past as well. If if you get to the point where you're starting to see cracks appearing, isn't it already too late?
0: The Fed should have been well in advance. Yeah, if, you, if of you, this. you wait for the consumer to fall, it's over. It's over. And I think that argument still stands for so many people in the FOMC. I haven't seen this situation. The macro risk might have receded a little bit, but it hasn't resolved itself in the data. Manufacturing is still overwhelmingly weak. There's some cracks in the consumer, just small ones starting to emerge. And if you're a policymaker and you're in the risk management business, then the prudent move to do is provide a little bit more insulation until you start to see everything that started this turn lower pick up again. And that starts with global manufacturing. And your lead on that comes later tonight with Chinese PMIs. That's why the burden of proof now is very much on the economic data. The sentiment has shifted. Will the fundamentals follow? This is Bloomberg. This
2: is The Cable, with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson, on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Good evening, let's talk banking, big day for European banks. Let's talk Deutsche Bank, still shrinking even after getting rid of unwanted businesses. Germany's largest lender posted first results after deciding to exit its equities trading business. Uh, the stock at the close 7.93% to the downside. Deutsche Bank reported a 30% decline in earnings from trading fixed income securities and currencies. Now Bloomberg's Matt Miller spoke to James von Molker, the bank's CFO.
7: Well, first of all, you do have to go into our numbers to see what's really going on in the core businesses. About 60% of the drop in revenues year on year is is the impact of decisions that we made strategically and announced in July, specifically to exit our equity sales and trading platform, our secondary equities business. Another 20% or so reflects what we think of as specific items that are transitory or DVA, which the market tends to look through. Uh, and about another 15% represents just, um, in our corporate and other segment, the impact of interest rates and, uh, if you like, hedge effectiveness. So the underlying performance of our core businesses is only down single digits, low single digits in revenue terms which, given that we're executing a very significant restructuring in the businesses, we think is a, is a sign of stability and success.
8: Where do you expect that to be for 2020, for 2022? I know you're sticking to your targets, but the core business revenues.
7: Look, we've been, we've been pretty consistent in saying that our, our focus here is, is maintaining stability in what we think of as our stable businesses of private bank, corporate bank, and asset management. We've demonstrated that again this quarter. Uh, and stabilizing and, over time, growing the revenues in the investment bank. In the investment bank, again down single digits, three percent x items um, year over year. Um, we've seen some growth in areas, corporate, uh, uh, you know, advisory and uh, and debt underwriting were up year on year. So twenty percent in our origination and advisory uh, franchise. In fixed sales and trading, we were down, um, but even in there, um, stability and growth in our core credit business um, and continued strength in FX for us.
8: We had a report that you are looking to make more cuts on the rates side. What can you say about um, that unit?
7: So we repositioned our, our rates franchise back in September, um, consistent with, uh, again, our strategic announcement and, frankly, the, the strategy that Ram Nayak and, and his team have been putting together. Um, we're actually comfortable that we've seen momentum rebuild in that business since the, since the repositioning. Uh, but, indeed, that was the main driver, rates and emerging markets debt, of the, of the decline in, in our FIC revenues
8: and thick trading always seems to be a difficult point, not just for Deutsche Bank, but for a lot of other um, competitors. When is that business going to be a consistent mm-hmm. winner?
7: You've seen a mixed performance um, and some strength in areas, um, and we've tended to actually, you know, to, to, to sort of be under-indexed, if you like, to the, to the pockets of strength in, in that market, but that changes over time, and we're confident we're taking the right actions to to rebuild, reposition that business. You know, that business is not going away. Um, investors require it. Um, it's a risk management business and a maturity transformation business, one that we're committed to and, as we've said, a broad-based capability in, in, in global rates.
8: In terms of the uh, originations, um, up 20%. Um, wh- where does that come from? What, what are the deals that you 've got to hold up?
7: so origination advisory we saw strength in as I said in, in advisory in particular was up over fifty percent year over year. That can reflect sometimes timing of deals um, um, but we 're pleased with the with the increase in if you like revenue market share in, in the quarter. Some of that was brought forward from from the fourth quarter, so it, it can be volatile but we 're pleased with the stability and, and the results in that business. Debt underwriting was particularly strong, um, both in investment grade high yield and, and our loan syndication business and In equities, um, we earned revenues of thirty seven million down only three per three million year on year um, in an equity franchise that we 've significantly re, repositioned um, uh, in primary equities. Um, And we are very pleased with the early success of of our model focused on primary equities for corporate issuers. Um, We either mandated or or completed um, uh, 50 uh, equity deals in the quarter, and we think um, both the performance in the third quarter and the pipeline are actually strong. And good validation, admittedly early days, but validation of the strategic decision we we took uh, to stay in the the primary business and support our clients.
8: What about the... um uh, inflows that we saw. I was actually looking for outflows in terms of assets under management. What's driving that?
7: Look, we're very pleased with the performance in, in DWS. Um, they are on track to hit their targets, which are inflows of, of around 2 to 3 percent this year, full year, and, and a cost-income ratio heading towards 70 percent. Um, so that's very encouraging. We've seen pretty consistent performance now over the last several quarters, despite what's been a, a difficult environment for, for asset managers.
8: Um, cost cuts are obviously a huge focus for you. How did this quarter go, and how do you expect that to so as go you forward? say we
7: 've been working hard on costs, frankly consistently over the last two years and, and this quarter again, we see ourselves as being on track to our to our full year target of twenty one and a half billion of expenses, um, excluding some of the transformation items that we call out in, in our reporting. Um, so at, at five point two billion this quarter, down sequentially again, um, down year on year. And that's a trend you've seen consistently now since the first quarter of 2018. That's a trend we have to continue.
8: Do you expect to have a positive JAWS ratio in 2020?
7: That's, that's absolutely what we're working towards. Um, and we, with, the, with the stabilization of, of revenues in the investment bank and continued um, small growth in, in the other businesses, a discipline on expenses, that's absolutely what, what our planning and, and, and execution should produce.
8: Um, what about the tiering that was announced by the ECB? Uh, we've seen reports that that will save you more money than competitors in, in 2020. What do you expect for that?
7: Well, it, it ties simply to, to your reserve requirement. So, so for us, the reserve requirement is, is approximately $5 billion, so it protects about $30 billion of balances that we hold at the central banks in the Euro system um, from, from the negative 50% deposit rate. Um, and so that's just a function of, of, of your reserve balance. For us, that translates into over 100 million of of revenue starting on the first of of the month. So that is a help uh, to the underlying revenue picture. uh, But it's against the backdrop of of the challenges that negative rates presents for banks in the industry.
1: James von Molker, the CFO of Deutsche Bank, talking to Bloomberg's Matt Miller a little earlier on today. Deutsche stock getting absolutely pummeled. Four minutes to go until the Fed's fantastic coverage coming up right here on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television. Stay tuned. It's coming up. This is Bloomberg.